Hi, everyone. Welcome to Conversations with B'nai Brith. I'm CEO Dan Mariash. A quick but important note before our interview, the B'nai Brith podcast is now Conversations with B'nai Brith. You'll be able to listen to and watch all of our programs wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube and Facebook. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Cornelia Wilhelm about the legacies of the German refugee rabbinate in the United States after 1933. But first, if you enjoy this show, follow or subscribe to Conversations with B'nai B'rith wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us, too. We always appreciate your feedback. And of course, you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook for all of our latest content. The modern German rabbinate emerged in German lands early in the 19th century as part of the process of Jewish emancipation. University trained and immersed in secular knowledge, these modern rabbis played a vital role in leading German Jewry toward social integration. These same rabbis were symbolic of Jewish integration and progress and became the backbone of Jewish communities before and even during the first years of the Nazi regime. That is, until Kristallnacht, November 9th, 1938, after which they were forced to emigrate from Germany, with the United States being the first choice as a place of refuge. Thanks to the existence of non-quota immigration visas available at that time, to clergy, students, and visiting scholars, refugee rabbis, rabbinical students, and scholars found their way to the United States after 1933, many of whom stayed here and continued their careers as rabbis, including Joachim Prinz, Abraham Joshua Heschel, and others. What paths did these Jewish leaders who fled Nazi persecution take? What do we know about them and their influence on American Jewish communities? Well, my guest today, Cornelia Wilhelm, professor of modern history at the University of Munich, wants to answer these questions and much more. In collaboration with the Leo Beck Institute, she has created an interactive digital database called German Refugee Rabbis in the United States, 1933 to 1990. It traces the migration paths and careers of about 250 German rabbis who fled to the United States from Nazi Germany after 1933. And that database, which we'll repeat later at the end of the program, uh, the URL is mira.geschichte, G-E-S-C-H-I-C-H-T-E, dot L-M-U dot D-E. Cornelia Wilhelm is a historian and professor of modern history at Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. She previously taught as professor of history and Jewish studies at Emory University and was a visiting professor at Rutgers University. Her work focuses primarily on comparative and transnational aspects of Jewish history, as well as on race, ethnicity, migration, and religion. Professor Wilhelm is the author of Movement or Organization, The National Socialist Volkstumpolitik in the USA, and The Independent Orders of B'nai B'rith and True Sisters, Pioneers of a New Jewish Identity, 1843, to 1914. And we'll be coming back to that book a little bit later in our program. Well, she's also written on uh, an in-depth study of German refugee rabbis in the U.S. after 1933 that inspired German refugee rabbis in the United States, 1933 to 1990, the digital database, currently in the process of being published by Indiana University Press under the title, The Last Generation of the German Rabbinate, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Professor Wilhelm, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. 
Thank you for having me, Dan. Well, it's great to have you with us again, Cornelia. I want to touch on your book about B'nai B'rith first. Uh, at the beginning of your academic career, what led you to the study of the narrative of German Jews in America and to write your book uh, detailing the history of B'nai B'rith in the United States in the early years from its founding in 1843 through the onset of World War I? Uh, the book is titled The Independent Orders of B'nai B'rith and True Sisters, Pioneers of a New Jewish Identity, 1843 to 1914. And I think it's really sad that your book makes it clear that uh, B'nai B'rith may have been the introducer of civil society here in the United States. So tell us about what made Absolutely. you that, that um, part of the So I have to go a little further back. I had a connection to the American Jewish community and perspective in during my studies and you through a internship at the United States Holocaust Memorial Commission. So that was before the founding of the uh, actual museum. And from that internship, I picked the topic for the dissertation, uh, which was on German-American associations and under the influx of Nazism. And it became very clear during that research how in present Jewish organizations and German Jewish organizations have long been part of that larger German-speaking, German ethnic community in the United States. And I, I got very interested in that topic. And that's really how I finally ended up with Neighbors, which was the largest such organization and also the center of a lot of missing knowledge uh, and also false perceptions um the breath has often served as a as a almost a template for people with anti-semitic attitudes to discuss to um, bring up um discussions on a Jewish global network so I got very interested in that and I thought that could really be a great topic for a second book and uh, it had to be in the 19th century. So uh, there was a perfect match. And um, the, the, as you know, the result was in many respects a great surprise. Women played a role in this organization. Nebrith, as you said yourself, turned out to be really a pioneer for modern civil society. Um, and I hope I have provided the background of the real background of this organization. <laughs> well, you, you have. And of course, we're talking here uh, today as we are about to enter Benabra's 180th year. Um, so uh, you started at the beginning with this with this research. We'll talk a little more about the book, uh, the book on Benabra and the True Sisters, which was a, a women's charitable um, sorority formed mm. a little bit later. Uh, it not only provides dates and facts and statistics, it also traces the growth of Jewish philanthropy as Jewish thought and con Jewish contributions to um, democratic civil society evolved. Um, did the idea for the forthcoming book on German refugee rabbis, uh, the last generation of the German rabbinate, and the project that it inspired stem from this research? Do you consider, for example, its contents as the next chapter mm -hmm. in the transformation indirectly, of life, life and thought? This was indirectly. As you know, I've spent a 
almost five years in Cincinnati at Hebrew Union College with this research and, and in the American Jewish archives. Um, and I've been there before and I, you know, really guess today I'm, I still have very close ties to, to that campus. Um, and every time I went there, I noticed that there was a strong German presence and fabric intellectually, personally, socially. Uh, there, from the very first visit on, I met a lot of people who were either born in Germany or had a close relationship or went to study there because the reform movement has this very close connection. Um, and that certainly resonated and um, meeting some refugees in person myself and also knowing that records are still there, I was wondering if such a topic could actually be researched in a larger context, in a group biography, uh, and not just uh, in the context of a of the biography of one person, which limits the perspective very much. Well, let's talk about the online project that uh, complements and expands the scope of your findings about the German rabbis who immigrated to America after Hitler came to power. Uh, the German refugee rabbis in the United States, 1933 to 1990, the digital database. Now, this research tool for exploring the cultural heritage and legacies of these rabbis uh, is sponsored by the Department of Jewish History and Culture at Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich, where you teach. Uh, give us an overview of the project and some of the key details. So I mentioned that it is really a methodological challenge to write a group biography of a group of that size. When we started, we had about 100 names and the data was still researched. But at the end of the research, um, I guess it's not at an end, but I would say today we have identified approximately 250 people uh, who fall into this category. Uh, and we look at as German rabbis into a group that is born in Germany, but also individuals that have been born outside of Germany, because we are talking about a time period in the 1920s or even earlier, where Germany has dramatic territorial changes due to the end of the World War, and there's still um, a lot of the attraction of a lot of young men who come from what we would today consider as Eastern Europe. But at the time, it was part of Central Europe and a German-speaking Central Europe. Um, and coming to Germany and joining these rabbinical seminaries for this dual-track um, education, um, that on the one hand uh, introduced the students to modern Jewish studies, Wissenschaft des Judentums, uh, Jewish education for the rabbinate, and um, forced them actually to pass a doctorate in sec in a, at a secular German university in any other subject area uh, was challenging, but also promising for a lot of people. And if you look at the um, the uh, member, the um, uh, the records of the seminaries, we find, for example, that 50% of the students uh, come from outside of Germany. 
And we have a huge range of age groups. Some of our rabbis are born in 1870, others are born in the 1930s. So it's there's a big variety of people and attitudes and experiences um, that also um, uh, really affect their attitudes toward the rabbinate. Uh, and that is changing at the time dramatically. Set the stage, if you will, for the events that so you examine. Yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to add this was our this was really the background for our decision to um, to start this with a database because we needed clear data and we needed a tool to compare and collect information. So this is how this database started and the digital humanities came into play for the book project, really. <laughs> well, I'd like to go beyond the database for a minute and, and get into some specifics. And if you would, set the stage for us for the events that you examine and that you write about. You explore the trajectory of integration from 1933, when Hitler rose to power and initiated his uh, growing, um, by the day, uh, program of anti-Semitism and persecution. Um, were the rabbis... Uh, and rabbinical students, um, especially targeted early on, um, describe their backgrounds uh, of, of the rabbis who did immigrate. Um, and were they only adherents of Reform Judaism, or were all the uh, various um, streams of mm -hmm. Judaism uh, at the time included in this group? Actually, for the majority of communal rabbis, um, the date of emigration, the main um, trigger was um, November, the pogrom of November 9 in 1938. Most of them tried to stay in Germany until then, even though the circumstances got more and more difficult. There were a couple of extremely political and extremely visible rabbis, also orthodox rabbis, um, who um, had more political problems in earlier years, but the majority, again, uh, of the communal and officiating rabbinate left mostly after 19, November 9, 1938. Uh, that's different with, with the scholars. Many of the rabbis um, were ordained rabbis, but they also taught as scholars at uh, seminaries or universities in Germany. Uh, and then they lost their job much earlier, already in April 1933. And uh, they were basically jobless and couldn't support themselves anymore. So the plight of, um, of scholars started many years earlier. Uh, and that was really um, an, an issue for um, Jews abroad to think about how to save Jewish knowledge and specific knowledge that was perhaps sometimes not available by anyone else. Um, so the rescue of scholars was the first step in a, in a rescue effort of um, American Jewry. And the second step was actually gradually bringing over students um, because it became more and more apparent that the 
um, students that were enrolled at the seminaries did not really have a brilliant future anymore, that they could not complete as their forefathers or their colleagues um, this dual track education any longer as their restrictions or the restrictions at German universities against Jewish students grew and they could not um, uh, pass through a doctorate anymore. Um, and um, their perspectives worsened. So their teachers tried to um, find places and opportunities for them in the United States, but also certainly Britain and um, also Palestine was an option at the time, depending on uh, interest and so practices. If, if many of these rabbis stayed until Kristallnacht or shortly after, um, it was almost it was near impossible at a certain point for those fleeing Nazism from wherever in Europe to get into the United States. So was this special legislation relating to um, religious figures on the books all the way through? Is that how it became easier? Because these decisions, I'm sure, had to be had to have been thought about. But then you had to make a decision. Am I going to leave? And how mm -hmm. am I going to and where am I going to go? So is is that that kind of loophole, if you will, uh, that was there on the books? That's what really enabled these rabbis to make it to the United States. I wouldn't say so because in the first place, the rabbinical seminaries were locked down. Uh, everybody around the seminaries and around the synagogues certainly. Uh, was arrested and taken into custody, either to a concentration camp or a Gestapo prison or something of that kind. And um, these people were intimidated by what could potentially happen to them and their families uh, were left in limbo about the, uh, the fate of their relatives. So in the first place, they were... Um, really scared off. And then after about four to six weeks, people were told that they had an opportunity to leave Germany if they left quickly. Um, if they, within four weeks, they could make it out of Germany, um, they could save their lives. And um, most people did. They, the rabbinate was forced out of Germany um, because it provided a backbone, a spiritual backbone, and a, um, a real uh, strong support system to the Jewish community that was isolated in Germany. But within the Jewish communities, um, Jews gathered, and the community as an organization, and it's a superstructure like a kehillia um, in Germany, not an individual congregation, so it's powerful and is well-organized, provided many social services, many options for emigration, legal support, uh, and certainly the synagogue played an enormous role in upholding people's spirits and uh, finding uh, resilience in, in being Jewish. Uh, <laughs> a thing that many of Germany's Jews had forgotten how that looked and what that was actually because they were very assimilated, often intermarried. You may not forget that people were persecuted as Jews who had even converted already 
And even the churches were not really supporting them. It was they were forced into the Jewish community and did had no knowledge of Judaism. And um, for a community that had lost touch with the essence of Jewishness, this was extremely important because they needed a, a spiritual resilience to go through what was to come that did matter in many ways. And what I meant uh, in the question was more uh, relating to U.S. immigration policy, because mm -hmm. yeah. um, it, it became around that time virtually impossible uh, right. to get in. I mean, you had, of course, the story of the the St. Louis and uh, and other attempts, those long lines at U.S. embassies and consulates, people trying to get out, trying to get visas uh, because you simply couldn't couldn't get in. And I was referring to what you had said before about there being this, or I said in the introduction, this um, opportunity which allowed uh, mm -hmm. religious figures um, to non enter. Non-quota visas, yeah. yeah so, so that, I mean, the non-quota visa turned into an enormous opportunity starting with the scholars because the religious movements in American Judaism noticed that they have schools themselves, and they can kind of operate that tool through these schools. Uh, and um, they did. They brought over many German-Jewish scholars, gave them a preliminary fellowship until they knew English better and until they could move on with their lives and supported them. And uh, with the growing necessity to bring over students and also communal rabbis they learned how to um, how really run this tool and utilize it in an excellent way for the communal rabbinate the american jewish congregations um, came together and uh, launched really a joint um, initiative um, to sponsor and uh, also fund uh, two-year positions for German rabbis and to find placements for them in the United States. They worked together and it was really happening across the religious spectrum. And it was certainly easier to find a, a place for a liberal rabbi in the reform movement than elsewhere. But um, it was an enormous effort from the community um, to create such positions. And even that didn't um, was sometimes um, not enough. I'd just give you an example. In the first three months of 1939, this organization, this joint venture, created 100 positions for German rabbis. Uh, that is enormous. The person um, who ran this uh, committee uh, was very empathic and not just an organizer, a rabbi himself, Alexander Bernstein. And um, uh, I find this is uh, an enormous task that he mastered. But there was something else that happened because um, in Jewry in general, also European Jewry, noted that um, there's an enormous time pressure on um, the rabbis that had to leave Germany. And that was that the British chief rabbi came out and had organized um, 100 emergency visas for one year 
for German rabbis to find refuge in Great Britain. So they could quickly get into or find a European refuge there. And many of them moved from uh, Great Britain to the United States later on. Um, this emergency visa program was also extended a little later. Uh, so Britain was an important ally in this record, in this rescue effort. Well, it's interesting. I, I was going to ask you about the American Jewish congregations and how they reacted. Um, and, and you answered that. Um, the members of these congregations, many of them were probably more familiar with Russian or, or Polish uh, culture uh, because of the great immigration to the United States uh, from those places. Um, seeking to hire German rabbis, um, did, they, did they realize that the great changes might result as, as a result of their presence? Uh, I'm sure their reputation preceded them because of their tradition of scholarship and learning. Uh, was that the case that 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 transition was made relatively smoothly um, because of this great respect that they had for for German rabbinical scholarship? For the rabbis, it was an enormous uh, task to adapt so quickly. So if we look at age cohorts, we see that older rabbis really had a tough time. Um, to restart their own congregation. Many of them ended up in refugee congregations and never became a part of the American religious movements. Um, that was oftentimes simply too much acculturation. Um, and they gathered their old community members around them. Um, and a typical example is Washington Heights. Some congregations also reorganized themselves with a specific reputation, like um, the Frankfurt Breuer congregation in Washington Heights, and it's still there. I just want to mention that it has a very distinct German Orthodox history and um, um, character. And um, uh, younger rabbis who had already uh, officiated in the rabbinate engaged intensely in American Jewish congregations and in the American Jewish movements because they still had a whole life ahead of them and they wanted to, you know, get back to their careers. Many of them noted that it wasn't that easy and many of them in the first place ended up in very small congregations in the American South, where they often noticed that there is an essential racial problem going on. They felt reminded of their own experiences and backgrounds. Um, and they certainly um, also struggled with a lot of differences between the congregation and the large organization of the Gemeinde in Germany, with the tasks of the rabbi who was more a manager to a single congregation and had to build on the profile of that congregation. Um, they struggled with English sermons. Um, I can really I feel for them because this book that I've been write, writing is the first book originally written in English. And while I have written shorter pieces in English, this was really hard. And it's not easy if you, you know, want to provide information in a certain style and with a certain depth. And they had to do it every week. Uh, and um, 
And in general, they had to do fundraising. They were responsible for different things. Their payment and social background uh, was different, uh, not as secure as in Germany. And also sometimes their status was not the same as a German European rabbi with that in-depth background. There is, however, also the youngest generation or the youngest group in this, and that's the second generation. That's a lot of people who came to the United States as students from Germany or as young people and studied at American colleges, uh, like Hebrew Union College, Yeshiva University. And they did very well into, they really um, grew up as young Americans. Um, they had a lot of, you know, social knowledge, um, like a, a certain uh, advantage. They didn't struggle with the language anymore. They didn't, they knew, they grew up in America, and but they still had the ethos of what was, um, uh, what existed around German Jewish rabbis. And they brought it really to the forefront late in their careers when many of them dominated American Jewish movements between the 70s and even 2000. Some of them are still alive. How much did their training mm -hmm. um, affect their social activism? Because many, you mentioned uh, those who, who came, served in the South, but not only those who had pulpits in the South. Um, their own experience, of course, in in uh, having to to flee Germany certainly informed, uh, I'm sure, their new situation here as they saw uh, an opportunity in a free country to be able to express uh, mm -hmm. their their views uh, about society. Uh, but how much did, did the training inform what ultimately became for for several of them? They became leaders in the civil rights movement more than more than a few. Uh, in the civil rights movement and other aspects of of, of social activism, um, the training was extremely deep, and it was a training that connected secular and religious elements. And I think they did much better in the transforming religious knowledge into a secular world, and that was really what modern Judaism was about. About um, you know, kind of including um, or the communication of Jewish issues with society and um, and responding to to what is going in society to modern Jews and finding solutions and um, uh, providing patterns to engage as Jews in modern society. Um, so they were really good in um, weaving that pattern on and inspiring um, uh, the respective movements in the effort to do that. So in a way, the reform movement also probably got a little more depth in history and Jewishness through them, and the Orthodox movement um, opened up through them a little more to secular society. Like, for example, um, Walter Würzburger, who was a Harvard-trained leader of that movement, which was really an innovation. Um, so they brought this together and made possible um, a melange that was difficult to make or difficult to provide. I think it's safe to it's safe to assume 
that these rabbis were respected, uh, of course, uh, but congregants must have been emotional about their own personal suffering resulting uh, from the loss of their homes and their German culture. And especially in, in those years, those immediate years after they arrived here, um, uh, families, whether they were from Germany or not, uh, there were many American families, of course, that were uh, touched and affected by uh, the great losses uh, among Jewish communities in Europe by those families still remaining. So um, those family members who were still had been left behind. Were these rabbis, do you think, considered as the embodiment of the ongoing tragedy that, that was happening? Um, do you think that, that that was a part of it? Uh, certainly, from what you've said, that uh, the motivation for bringing them over was clear. They wanted to save these rabbis. But once they got into the pulpit, were they also kind of the embodiment of what was happening real time in Europe? Okay, in a way, yes, but not as victims. I think they stood, they came across as like Jewish heroes who stood strong with their communities, and they did, because um, actually already in the 1920s, after World War I, um, a younger generation has revo revolutionized the German rabbinate and made it more political. That is not so frequently known. Many of these young rabbis were Zionists, and um, the events were kind of, kind of um, you know, overshadowed by the Nazi period, uh, where this became an important tool of, of stimulating a new Jewishness, a new Jewish identity, a political Jewish identity, almost like an ethnic pride in the synagogue. Uh, and that made them I think role models and heroes to also American communities um, who were in the 50s really also affected um, by a situation of estrangement from Judaism, of increasingly assimilated communities who found themselves in a situation that was not so different of the situation of German Jewry um, a couple of decades earlier, and who certainly looked for answers to the Holocaust and what has happened. Uh, and it was to the American Jewish mo religious movement, it was in, instantly uh, clear that the Holocaust and what happened in Germany would be an enormous threat to American society also, it could be. Um, so understanding what was going on and how could rabbis, clergy kind of steer the events that this would not happen was a central question of American society then and American religions. Well, stepping back um, in an, and in that context, can you make any general observations about the impact that this group of German refugee rabbis had on contemporary American life um, that's evident today or was evident in the 20th century, the end of the 20th century? Sure. Um, I would say, um, I have mentioned that before, many of them started their American careers in the American South and encountered uh, racism in American um, small communities there. 
um, a large portion of them um, engaged, if not all, and not all of them. I mean, I've also found um, accounts where rabbis said, I've seen all that before. I don't have the strength to go through this again. But a large portion of them uh, became strong leaders in the civil rights movement. Many of them became local leaders in the civil rights movement. Um, that's a nice thing about the database. All this becomes visible. Many of us know of Joachim Prince and <laughs> his career and his outspokenness because he introduced, how should I say, um, the civil rights leaders at the March on Washington um, precisely with that historic line that it cannot happen in the United States now at this day and age. What happened in Berlin uh, a decade or two decades earlier, nobody stood up for the Jews of Germany. That is a very strong introduction um, and uh, it makes a very clear reference. In general, aside from the civil rights discourse, um, they engage very much in a discourse on the Holocaust and uh, of how could this happen? Because it also it was giving answers to their own personal questions in their uh, in their lives. Um, once they had kind of, you know, mastered the problems of emigration and resettlement, they had time to think about their own vitas and how could this happen? They felt at home in Germany. Um, and some of them, actually quite a, many of them, went back to see and reconnect and have difficult discussions, sometimes um, addressing things that the Germans didn't necessarily want to hear. But um, they launched an important dialogue with that that was really essential for Germany in the long run. Um, it was Christian-Jewish um, dialogue uh, that they um, launched in many respects, uh, particularly because the Christians did not really support them in Germany and they, they were singled out and left alone. There was no solidarity or very little. Um, they also um, um, wanted to revitalize Judaism in America. They felt that American Jews have, first and foremost, very little knowledge about their religion and their heritage and their, their tradition. So learning together for them in their congregations or launching a Jewish studies department in community was, was very important. Um, because they saw the future of a modern Judaism there. And they also felt modern Judaism to be, to be attractive had to take place in, on the political scene in civil society, and modern Jews should take a political stand here. Um, I just, you know, they also know about Abraham Joshua Heschel and Max Nussbaum and the other rabbis did many times the same thing. Um, it's often not so well known or only known on a, on a, a local level. So we've seen a great um, dedication here. Well, there are a lot of takeaways from <laughs> this project. Um, so important. Um, when one considers uh, the impact uh, that these rabbis, this is the taking stock exercise, um, the tremendous impact that these rabbis had on American Jewish life and beyond, 
as you mentioned, civil rights movement, other questions uh, that they they brought such an important perspective to the table. So many were were so highly respected uh, in their communities um, as scholars, as rabbis, uh, as uh, authors. Um, really, um, Cornelia, you've you've done a, a tremendous job in in telling the story, and there's more to tell. Um, I'm sure. Uh, you have a workshop coming up, I know. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, um, there is. it's really a, a big void in the research literature um, because the group as a group was not visible for a long time. And now we can identify the group. We know who belonged or who, who didn't belong. And there are so many topics that could be researched. That's why at the moment, we are funded by a second line by the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft, the German Research Foundation, um, to create a digital research portal in English um, that makes visible um, the biographical data or the prosopographical data of these rabbis and um, will provide access to um, additional digital resources and sources so that reaches, um, researchers from different countries can access this portal without problem and without having to make uh, long-distance travel, which is expensive and difficult to organize. Um, and um, the portal will also provide many more visualizations and analytic functions um, that we hope um, provide answers to many questions. After all, these rabbis also migrated to Israel or Great Britain or South America or you name it. Um, and we would like to grow as a project and um, create a, a, a website where we can see how the survivors of this profession have um, uh, come back, have organized their post-Holocaust lives and how they have reorganized because they were not gone because they crossed the border. Um, they started new lives, but they had lifelong friendships. And uh, for them, their Judaism was their home, their Heimat. And they have noticed that it's portable and it's it can be developed and it had a future. So um, I hope people look into this database and make something of it. <laughs> well, I hope so. And, you know, we're so uh, so proud of the fact that B'nai B'rith um, played a, a role in, in some of this. Um, members of the Leo Beck Lodge of B'nai B'rith, a New York City Lodge named after uh, the great theologian and president of B'nai B'rith in Germany, Rabbi Leo Beck, had a relationship with uh, several of the, more than several, of the refugee rabbis. So we're pleased to have kind of played our, our own role um, as part of the 180th anniversary um, of, uh, of B'nai B'rith. Well, Trials and Transmissions, Mapping the Legacy of the German Refugee Rabbinate is a project created and led by Professor Cornelia Wilhelm. Her in-depth study of German refugee rabbis in the U.S. after 1933 will be published by Indiana University Press under the title, The Last Generation of the German Rabbinate in the Not-Too-Distant Future. And uh, I want to remind everyone again um, about the database, the website, uh, that you can go to to learn more about Professor Wilhelm's work. And that database URL is mira, M-I-R-A, dot Geschichte, G-E, 
S-C-H-I-C-H-T-E dot L-M-U dot D-E. Cornelia, your survey of B'nai B'rith, our organization in America from 1843 to 1914 is truly priceless. And we thank you, really, we can't really thank you enough for your work. And of course, the same can be said about your efforts mapping the legacy of the German refugee rabbinate in the U.S. after 1933. We really appreciate your being here, and we wish you the best of luck going forward. Thank you very much. Um, just one addendum. I also want to stress that the Bnei Brit Lodge was the one continuity for these refugees. Um, Bnei Brit was big in Germany, and if they had lost their home and their congregations, they the first thing they asked when they came to the United States was if there is a birth lodge they could connect to, and they did. So it plays a big role for this topic as well. Well, we're very proud of, of that role. Thank you again for reminding us about it. Thank you again to Professor Cornelia Wilhelm for joining us and to you for tuning in today to Conversations with Benebrit. We hope you enjoyed what you've heard. And if you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode with friends and others. For all of our latest content, and if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Conversations with Benebrit wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook. This is your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Until next time, take care, everybody.